Hello, welcome to the Market Weekly Podcast. I'm Daniel Morris, Chief Market Strategist. This week, I am joined by Gabriel Wilson-Otto, Head of Sustainability Research, to talk about developments within the ESG space. If we start off with an introduction, I guess, to the topic, and we think about, uh, of course, not only the negative consequences of COVID-19, but hopefully some of the positive consequences, and I think we all globally perhaps have come to appreciate uh, our greater environment in the, in the broadest sense and an appreciation and hopefully a greater sensitivity uh, to not only what we do every day uh, in our personal lives, but the context in which that occurs. And I think that's got to have had implications for ESG more specifically for you, Gabriel, and, and the work that you do. Now, if we then tie that perhaps to financial markets uh, as an example, uh, 2020 saw an inflection point, I believe, in social bond issuance and commitments to green funding, net zero targets. Uh, What are some of the developments that you've been seeing? Cheers. Thanks for the question and great great to be here to discuss these topics today. I think that 2020 really was a turning point in more ways than one. One key area was really putting a spotlight on corporate behaviour and what constitutes business resilience. And what we actually saw was an increased focus on how corporates are treating their customers as well as how they're impacting society more broadly. And to try and address some of the shortfalls from health systems, from treatment of employees and safety nets, we actually saw a huge ramp up in social bond issuances over the year. So at the start of 2020, it was more of a pivot from green financing into social bonds as people tried to address their immediate concerns. But as the year evolved, we saw a really interesting emergence of longer term commitments to green funding and the idea of building back better. And this is an area that we've seen huge interest in and supporting a broader energy transition. And within Asia Pacific and also broadly, we've seen a raft of additional commitments, including net zero commitments for carbon emissions coming out of China, South Korea and Japan. And this really has the potential to be quite game changing in terms of the impact on the environment more broadly, but also the investment thematics that this weight of money can actually support within the region. So you're talking about essentially a greater opportunity set, if you will, for Uh, investors that are interested in in supporting uh, ESG. How would you advise them when they think about the best asset classes to seek out to get exposure to ESG or the themes or perhaps even what sectors they should have on their radar? So if we start first by looking at asset classes, for me, this is a really interesting one because what we've seen is a huge commitment to funding of infrastructure projects, which is going to turbocharge the green bond and green finance space. So we're expecting record issuance coming out this year and um, for the years to come around funding some of those products from green issuance. So this could be a huge area of focus. The other side is if we're looking at equity, And if we think about ESG integration, there are really two key topics or two key ways of getting exposure to this. The first is risk management, which is essentially trying to evaluate how resilient your business is. As we saw during COVID, some assets and business practices, which were previously seen as robust, were actually highlighted as being more volatile than people might have anticipated during this downturn. So in terms of getting that type of risk exposure and evaluation, that's one area where ESG integration and analysis can really help here. 
The other side of thinking about exposure is around the thematic side. And this is really the upside or potential um, positives that a lot of people are focused on. In 2020, what we saw was huge outperformance from the renewable energy space, especially with a lot of the commitments towards building green financing projects, as well as net zero targets, as we mentioned previously. If we look forward to 2021, I personally think that the renewable energy space is going to see a multi-year tailwind. So I think this isn't going anywhere, anywhere shortly. But also with the, um, the Conference of Parties on Biodiversity this year in China, I think we're going to see enhanced interest coming out on areas such as ecosystem restoration, preservation, and also these types of broader environmental protection. Now, of course, there's always a question of that concept when we talk about ESG investing, and that is whether an investor has to sacrifice performance in order to achieve this, shall we say, uh, alternative objective. Uh, what are the lessons from 2020 around that particular debate? I think it's a really tricky question because we need to break it down into individual parts. Because what I would actually argue is that integration of ESG in terms of better risk and opportunity assessment is completely compatible with superior risk-adjusted returns. The way I personally think about it and the way that we integrate it internally is that better insight can lead to better information, which can lead into better decision-making and better risk-adjusted returns. And so it's essentially about having more information to make better decisions. That's how I consider ESG integration. If we think about thematic exposure or impact, this is really where it can get a little bit different. And so on one extreme, you can have an environmental target or a social target, which is actually the primary objective of an investment vehicle, which and maximizing that impact can occasionally come at the cost of returns or it becomes a debate between the two. So for me, I think we need to be careful about what we're trying to identify here and whether we're talking about integration versus impact investing. If we look at integration, if anything, I would say that 2020 actually reinforced and consolidated the view that ESG investing is directly compatible with identifying long-term business success and resilience. And this was held out in the performance of a lot of ESG funds and indices that we saw over 2020, and also the huge amount of inflow that investors put towards ESG products. So you can make an argument that part of that inflow was due to the salience and awareness of ESG topics, both social and environmental, that came to the fore last year. The other part is more of a alpha or outperformance driven focus where all of these asset classes were performing so well that we started to see a bit of a momentum trade with investors increasingly chasing these sorts of assets. We talk about all these uh, areas, these sectors, we use these terms uh, ESG, but I'm sure you appreciate that when you get down to brass tacks, exactly defining what is what. Uh, how to score things, how to compile the data is a rather complicated endeavor. What have you seen in terms of developments either within the industry or within BMP? Again, I think that one of the interesting things that we saw over the last 12 months, and this has been a trend for a longer term, but really accelerated over the last 12 months, was the regulator focus on ESG data, as well as data quality, harmonization, transparency, and exactly what a green social or ESG product or asset should look like. 
And one of the key stats that keeps getting brought around about this is if you look across the rating agency environment, if we take fixed income, there's a correlation of 0.99 between different rating agencies. So essentially, if one agency says something's good, most other agencies will agree with them most of the time. Unfortunately, that doesn't hold with ESG ratings. The correlation is less than 0.5, which means that one rating agency might put a company as best in class, another might put them as bottom of the pack. And from my perspective, there are a few challenges that this immediately brings out. I don't think it's a statement to say that ESG analysis is broken or that there's a problem here. I think it highlights that the underlying data can be challenging and the quality of the data being used can be very subjective. The other key point that it highlights is that there are more definitions of what constitutes good in inverted air quotes with my hands um, within ESG than within a credit rating environment. So, for example, within ESG, you could be trying to measure the impact of a company on a specific set of um, criteria, such as its environmental footprint or its social contribution. Another set of scores could be focused purely on the risk to financial performance of the company that those factors might imply. So the data you use and how you measure it can be really different and also needs to be fit for purpose. And that concept of fit for purpose from an ESG score is the key reason why we at BNP Paribas Asset Management decided to build our own scores to ensure that we would, they were, the scores were completely consistent with how we invest, were built to create insight for our investment managers, and also so that we had complete transparency over what was going into them to ensure that we could control all aspects of the score and the insight that was being generated. So against that backdrop of exploding interest and their need for clarification, uh, we've seen a lot of regulation come up globally and also a push towards harmonization of ESG data and ratings. And unfortunately, I think that we're still a long way away from actually getting a uniform set of global data and statistics and that this would only solve part of the problem. But the developments we've seen and our personal involvement within the firm, within the European Commission, and also within regulatory development in Asia Pacific is definitely helping try and push towards that goal of harmonization and standardization for taxonomies. So if we recap perhaps what's happened over the last year, if you will, uh, we've seen a greater awareness of, of ESG criteria, perhaps as much in life as in investing. That's led to greater inflows into the space, fortunately, at least recently, also good performance. Uh, but at the same time, highlights the challenges that you face in terms of gathering the data that you need to make these evaluations about how companies or asset classes rate, uh, and then exactly that, determining what the scoring should be as you evaluate these investments. Well, that's all for today. If you have any further questions, please do not hesitate to reach out to your BNP Paribas Asset Management contact. My thanks to Gabriel for sharing his insights. Please join us next week when I will be speaking with Alex Johnson, Portfolio Manager for Absolute Return, to talk about the performance and dynamics for Absolute Return funds in this environment. Until then, we hope you stay safe and take care. This podcast presentation includes a discussion on current market events and is not intended as investment advice or an offer of products or services by BMP Paribas Asset Management. Please keep in mind that the information and analysis in this presentation is only current as of the publication date.